part of that minority stress encompasses the day-to-day -day encounters with the threats of racism, um, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, any type of discrimination as it pertains to your membership within a minoritized group or a marginalized group. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Before we get started, just a few notes on today's content. The views expressed here only reflect our opinions and don't represent the CWC or the University of Florida or the mental health professions as a whole. Additionally, some content may be sensitive for students who have experienced trauma. Please reach out if you need additional support. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash and Renisha Miller, CWC Counseling Psychology Intern and Doctoral Candidate, discuss minority stress, intersectionality, and discrimination-related trauma. Hi, Renisha. Welcome. So glad you're here today. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are going to be talking about a number of important topics today, and I'll throw out some words that listeners may or may not know what they mean yet, but just hang in here and you will. Um, we are going to be talking about minority stress, intersectionality, racial trauma, and the experiences of our Black students during these difficult times. But Renisha, before we get started, why this conversation and why now? I think I love that question. And I'll, I'll answer it first with two questions. Why not this conversation? And why now, right? As opposed to why not years prior, right? So I think for a large portion of the world, the events that are occurring in terms of the plague, that is um, racism, that is discrimination, that is prejudice, um, seems to be a new phenomenon. But those who have been living in these Black bodies, this has been part of our existence with the inception of this country. And so we have been living this for years. And I say we have been living it for years and centuries because a lot of the residual impact of being um, second-class citizens is multi-generational. It's passed down. And so this is absolutely a conversation that needs to happen. Um, and it should have happened or it should have been happening Prior to now, with everything that's going on with the murders of, let's say, George Floyd or Ahmaud Aubrey, um, Breonna Taylor, just to name a few, people are being awakened and it's about time. So absolutely, this conversation needs to happen and it's happening now and hopefully it will continue once the um, news reporters and the cameras are long gone that we can continue to do this work at home, um, in the classroom, on campuses, everywhere, because it's necessary, because it impacts the very existence of a group of people in this nation and around the world. Thank you. That's so important that we, we should have been having this conversation a long time ago. And by we, I mean 
particularly white people, should have been having this conversation with one another and with the systems of power that we occupy a overrepresented amount in those yeah. positions and and non non black people in general to reckon with this. I one thing that I'm aware of is that I suspect will come out in this conversation is that black people have been dealing not just dealing with this stuff but talking about it, seeking support from one another all along. So that so the awakening part is happening hopefully uh with white people primarily. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Yes, and we we should have been we should have been paying much greater attention all yeah. along. Yeah, and I think the the awakening right now that is a function of privilege. The privilege of being able to turn or shift your gaze or not see or to be allowed to slumber. And for Black folk in this country, we can't sleep. We have to perpetually keep our gaze on our very existence. And we also have to know about you all's existence as well, because a lot of times, as we have seen, it has come down to a matter of life and death if we are not aware and vigilant, which that awareness and that vigilance, and some might say is hypervigilance, is a part of the stress, the daily stress and distress that we are carrying, in addition to all of the other things that we must must traverse as just human beings on this earth. Absolutely. And when you talk about not being able to slumber, I was thinking that is metaphorical and literal. Not mm-hmm. sleeping as well at night, living with this danger always around you, even in your home at night. Are you really safe and are your loved ones really safe? Absolutely. Absolutely. The um, perseveration that comes with thinking about your safety and thinking about various scenarios that may or may not happen and how to keep yourself and how to keep your family safe. And given the state of the world, certain traditional institutions that were um, ideally, right, ideally created to keep all of us safe doesn't necessarily keep all of us safe. So if I can't call on this institution, who can I call on, right? And the helplessness and hopelessness that comes with the realization that the very institutions that are deemed enforcers of safety do not extend to me in mind. And then where, where can you really be safe? Yeah, it becomes a scary thing when I cannot be safe within my own mind and body. Because even when I retreat within myself, I am left with myself and myself being grappling with the internalization of all of the stereotypes, all of the negative images I've seen in the media, I've read about as it's associated with what it means to possess my Black body. Just just think about that, right? The gravity of sometimes I'm not even safe within myself. That is real. That is real. And the daily experience of many. Yes, yes. You are already talking about minority stress and racial trauma. 
But I wonder, since you have spent so much of your time not just living this, but studying it and teaching about it and counseling students who are experiencing these things, if you might share a little bit about what is minority stress? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, Sarah, before I can talk about minority stress, I have to talk about stress in general. So there are these two researchers who are, I think, charged as the bedrock scholars in stress research and psychology, uh, Lazarus and Folkman. They define stress in three parts. They talk about how an individual comes across an environmental threat or demand. And once you encounter that that environmental threat or demand, you then have to appraise whether or not you are capable of confronting and overcoming that threat or that demand. And the final part of that is if you say, yes, I have either the external or internal resources to confront this demand, then I'm successful in in that way. But if you happen to answer in the negative and say, no, I I don't have the tools, internal, external, to overcome this threat or demand, then Lazarus and Folkman suggest that distress follows, right? A distress response, which is, I don't have the necessary coping tools to do what's necessary to keep myself, mind, body, and spirit safe in the face of this threat or demand, hence the manifestation of stress. Now, minority stress is built upon this kind of foundational understanding of stress that Lazarus and Folkman propose, but it goes a step further to talk about all the ways in which minoritized individuals have to encounter various sources of oppression and how those various sources of oppression adds a layer of distress that is qualitatively different, and some would argue, and I would agree, a lot more taxing than, let's say, typical stressors that any human being would find themselves subjected to. Part of that minority minority stress encompasses the day-to-day encounters with the, the threats of racism, um, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, any type of discrimination as it pertains to your membership within a minority, a minoritized group or a marginalized group, right? And how you navigate all of that. Thank you. That's, that's very helpful. So life is stressful, right? We, life is stressful. We know that as counselors. It's stressful for everybody. But what you're saying is that when you're part of a marginalized or minoritized group, you're already coping with all the regular stressors, plus you said an added layer, and I'm, I'm thinking layers, right? There's mm-hmm. so many extra layers of navigating a society and culture, institutions, relationships where the dominant groups are responding to you in hostile, aggressive, demeaning ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, you know, yes, we all go through, through stress, but stress is not equal. 
Yes. Right? And, and when I go through stress as a white person, my whole life I've been socialized to believe that I'm going to be able to overcome it and have been given the resources to do so part as part of my privilege that I, that I was born into. Right. And what you, what you said initially that I want to, I want to just emphasize is even in this definition of stress, we all feel stress, but distress is a response to lacking the internal or external resources to deal with that stress effectively. Right, right. When we when we think about minority stress, and I want to introduce this term intersectionality into this too, because this is yet another layer of minority stress. So intersectionality deals with the ways in which people's social positionality or their social identities, the various ones they possess, intersect and intertwine to create a unique blended social experience. More popularized understandings of intersectionality oftentimes get it wrong and think that that's just the the scope of intersectionality. That is, how, how do all of our social identities come together and make the whole of our existence? No, 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 no. It's specifically, intersectionality is specifically talking about the intersection of multiple marginalized identities, okay? Not just the fact that you have, let's say, dominant identities and non-dominant identities. This particular theory or paradigm wanted to shed light on what happens when you have multiple sources of oppression, Hence, the intersection of marginalized identity. So when you identify with a marginalized racial group, marginalized gender group, marginalized affectional orientation, socioeconomic status, ability status, language, nationality, the intersection of all of those marginalized identities coming together creates a unique blended identity or blended experience that can in no way, shape, or form be compared to someone outside of those intersections. So when we bring into the conversation minority stress, that individual at the intersection of all of those marginalizations are having to basically overstep landmines in terms of oppressive um, experiences And when you think about, let's say, a nation or you think about more locally, a college campus or a university campus, this idea of the day-to-day, moment-to-moment re-inoculation or reintroduction to your intersections in the way of, let's say, microaggressions, discriminative uh, practices, you are constantly being confronted with your oppression. And this idea of distress becomes even more intense because a lot of these um, sources of oppression or sources of stress, right, are related to the oppression, which are in and of themselves social and institutional. These are things outside of the individual, right? So by way of the definition of Lazarus and Folkman's appraisal theory, do I have the external and internal tools to overcome this? In this sense, no, because discrimination is not the problem of the one discriminated against. It did not start with me, so it's not going to end with me. And so the conversation then shifts from 
I know for me, when I'm working with my clients, it is not their burden to overcome these oppressive systems, right? And there's only so much I can do in terms of teaching them how to breathe through these moments, teaching them cognitive skills to overcome. All of those things are for naught if I, as a clinician, don't advocate outside the therapeutic space and I'm not questioning policy. I'm not questioning institutional practices, right? Because that work, that ex those external factors are going to bring home the internal tools that we're instilling or I'm instilling in my clients to really be able to overcome the distress of sitting at the intersection of multiple marginalized identities. White people created the problem of racism and it's our job to fix it. And yeah. it doesn't mean, I mean, black people have a long history of fighting to try to, you know, get equality and get justice and just just get to have equal status. But racism is a white person problem. Yeah. And black people experience it and have to suffer from it. But teaching teaching someone to just practice deep breathing and stress management techniques that can be helpful in the moment for maybe bringing down that that overwhelming level of distress so that you can focus on a test or focus on getting your homework done that may be helpful in the moment but it doesn't solve the source of this and it starts to feel like blaming the victim if that's the only thing you can offer absolutely absolutely um, and I will say, beginning in my work as a clinician, I was not a fan of diaphragmatic breathing and many of the traditional coping strategies that we would use to kind of help someone deal with anxiety, help someone deal with depression. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up anxiety and depression is because there's a lot of research that would suggest that minority stress is chronic. It's chronic in the way of the day-to-day -day microaggressions, living in, an, in a world in which racism, discrimination is codified, is institutionalized, right? So in a lot of ways, it is embedded within the very cultural fabric that we find ourselves. There is no escaping of it, right? So this chronic experience of minority stress leads to the real susceptibility to depression, anxiety, and racial trauma. Racial trauma is absolutely real. Now, what is trauma in and of itself, right? Psychological trauma is defined as an individual's deep experience of distress, like their experience of stress and distress is so intense to the point that their normal coping strategies no longer attend to or address the deep distress. And it can oftentimes lead to feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. Well, earlier I talked about just that in the experience of having to navigate multiple sources of oppression. So by definition, living as an individual at the intersection of multiple marginalized identities 
it, it absolutely increases your susceptibility to racial trauma or what I would like to kind of introduce is this idea of discrimination related trauma. Now, the, why am I bringing up racial trauma, depression, anxiety, um, while I was talking about diaphragmatic breathing? Because if we are working as clinicians with an individual who has been diagnosed with PTSD, the scope of my work is not going to be to tell this person to breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in and breathe out. I would be considered incompetent in my work because we understand that trauma Trauma-informed or trauma-focused therapy is multi-layered and it's complex because the trauma in and of itself that our clients are bringing into the room is multi-layered and complex. There are many different components. It's a progression, right? It's a stepwise work. We, the first thing that I typically do in my work with trauma is first, I wanna equip my clients with the coping strategies necessary to self-soothe, to calm their mind, to calm their body, because I know once we take it a step further and we start maybe talking a little bit about the traumatic experiences, it's going to, it's gonna trigger some of those trauma responses in the body and I want to make sure that my client knows how to take care of themselves in that moment and make sure we have a plan of taking care of them. The same way when I am working with clients who identify with multiple marginalized social identities, because I have seen in the therapy room when a student comes to me and talks about that, that professor who intentionally gets my name incorrect after I've asked them politely, to pronounce my name this way, or the multiple times in which I am passed over in class uh, when my hand is raised, the invisibility that comes with these experiences. I can see my clients living those experiences out in the room with me as if they are right there in that place, right? So the breathing helps for a while, but there are other things that are necessary to completely confront and overcome those experiences. That is trauma work. And that is, those are signs when those clients are coming in the room with me, those are signs of PTSD. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of times racial trauma or discrimination related trauma is not recognized in the same way that traditional post-traumatic stress or let's say trauma um, is conceptualized. And I think that is uh, egregious and, 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 it, and it's a miss. And I think the current times that we're in is shedding light on the fact that the things that we have been talking about in our communities and been dealing with and healing ourselves of, it's real and it deserves attention. Absolutely. I love your term discrimination related trauma. And I think that that calls a spade a spade. Like when we call it racial trauma, there's still a little bit of whitewashing of well, what does that really mean? And who does that apply to? But, but discrimination related trauma names that there, that there is a discriminator. It, it names the, the oppressor in that as well as the victim. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I think, too, it creates more space, right? Because when we talk about intersectionality, the intersection of multiple marginalized identities, racialized discrimination is one component of that. There is affectional gender identity related um, discrimination as well, ability status discrimination as well. So I think the term discrimination related encompasses this aspect of intersectionality in a way that I think, um, let's, let's just say racial trauma might not. It's more intersectional. Yes. As, and you had been very kind to share a number of resources with me prior to this conversation that we'll post also to the show notes for anyone. And I, I strongly encourage you to do some reading. One of the things that around intersectionality that is so simple but so powerful is the is this idea that it's not just additive like it's it's not just additive the whole is greater than the sum of its parts it's not like you get a certain amount of discrimination for being black and a certain amount of discrimination for being female it's that there's something unique that happens when you yes. combine black and female that is not accounted for you know being a black male or being a white female there's something exponential that happens yes. at that intersection yes uh, the word blended is i believe very very key because it denotes this inability to tease apart right it is so morphed together that you have to recognize it as its own independent experience. Um, I love Kimberly Crenshaw, who is one of the leading founding scholars of intersectionality research. And in one of her, I think, groundbreaking works for me was she did a review of law cases of discrimination brought forth by Black women. And what she found in those case reviews was that when it was brought forth by Black women in terms of cases of, let's say, uh, sexism in the workplace, oftentimes the, the judges involved in those cases would look to, look to white women to see if they were experiencing the same thing. And if those Black women brought up, let's say, cases of racial discrimination, those judges would bring up the experiences of Black men in the workplace to see how do they compare. And Kimberly Crenshaw was like, absolutely not. The experiences of Black women in these cases are incomparable to white women or Black men because in each of those groups, there is still the existence of privilege, right? For white women, there's the privilege of um, whiteness. And for Black men, there's the privilege of maleness, right? But, white, but, but Black women have no experience of privilege in either of those spheres. And so the discrimination that they experience, you cannot, you cannot compare. And so a lot of my research, well, my dissertation research looks at Black women's experiences of this unique blended intersectionality of their race and, and their gender um, in the form of gendered racism 
which are those stereotypical discriminative experiences that only black women can attest to, such as the angry black woman stereotype or the strong black woman stereotype or issues related to being silenced or marginalized. There are two researchers that I love, Dr. Gianni Lewis and Dr. Um, Helen Neville, who were the Black women to develop the gender racial microaggression scale, which was a way of measuring these gendered racial experiences of Black women. And once again, their work came out of this idea that well, the ways in which we right now um, look at um, sexist uh, microaggressions or racial microaggressions does not really capture the microaggressions that Black women encounter, right? So a lot of the things that I mentioned in terms of angry Black women, strong Black women, silence and marginalized, and the, the objectifications of beauty and body physicality were born out of the works of um, Lewis and Neville in trying to capture the real gendered racial experiences of Black women in that way. Thank you, Renisha. I'm thinking about, de- depending on where you're, where you're at in that intersection, your ways of coping differ. Yes, yes, yes. I have so many questions that I want to ask you and that things that I would love for you to share more about your own personal experiences at the intersection of black and female and also black and female in higher education, which, right. Um, But I, I wanted to go back to something that I read in one of the minority stress scales that you shared with me, some items that were listed about just being in spaces that were predominantly white. And the items said things like, essentially like I've, I've had to interact with white people all day. And I've had to sit in classrooms where I was the only black person there, or I, all day I've been interacting with faculty who are non-black. And as a white woman, I was, you spent you know, many, many years in the higher education. I was, I guess I want to highlight that for anyone who's white who might be listening, is that that is so fundamental that, that we just take for granted that throughout our days, we are going to be in the dominant group. And should we have any moments where we're not the dominant racial group present, that's stressful, but it's also kind of a novelty. And we know that it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be over soon. And and that we get to we get to opt out of, of we get to opt out of that. It's like usually we're opting in for a cultural experience or something if I'm the only one. And it is extremely stressful just to be black in predominantly white settings, which is almost all of the time for you. It's also a re-traumatization, Sarah. And let me tell you why. When you navigate spaces, traditional spaces that was not that were not historically created with you in mind, there's a level of self-policing that has to go on 
as a way to maintain your physical and mental safety. Now, when you think about a college student, a black college student at a PWI, the whole of our existence, and I'm saying ours because I have matriculated through PWIs, right? And essentially spending most of my day, and um, um, my friends and I, we would laugh and say spending most of my day on, right? It's almost as if we have to flip the switch on to say, okay, even though I don't agree, I have to put a mask on. I have to conceal who I really am because my vulnerability will not be respected in this space by way of people not truly understanding me. And talking about death by a thousand cuts um, of being vulnerable and then having people microaggress your vulnerability by way of not understanding you and your expression of yourself. That's just one thing. So most of my existence in this space, on this PWI's campus, is not just stressful and distressing, but it is absolutely uncomfortable because 80% of my time is spent having to police myself and navigating white spaces, because let's just be honest, whiteness is pervasive. That's what white supremacy is. And when you're having to navigate that, you're having to to protect yourself. You're having to um, conceal parts of you so that you remain safe. So when I get home to my dorm, I it's like the proverbial. I just want to throw my hat up on the on the hat rack, throw my coat on the floor, and unbutton my pants and just breathe. Because all day I have been hiding parts of me and I just want to let her free. Not only is that mentally exhausting, Sarah, but a lot of what a black college student experiences, it becomes somatized. It becomes lived in the body. Because and so it's like, listen to your black and your African-American students when they tell you, I am tired, when they tell you, I cannot focus, when they tell you, I feel jittery or I feel nervous, and they can't explain that anxiety. Well, what that is, is the accumulation of the chronic experience of racial or discrimination-related trauma. Now, Retraumatization, we know what retraumatization is. It is the re-experience of the initial trauma. Well, if the site of my trauma is being in these white spaces where I'm microaggressed, where I encounter real institutionalized forms of discrimination, and you're ex- you're expecting me to show up to class every hour, every day of every week of every month of every year until four years I get my degree. I am re-traumatized every freaking day, every day. And even for me as a black woman working in this profession where I have experienced microaggressions from colleagues and I am expected to sit in two hour long meetings or to sit in um, um, business calls with people who have microaggressed against me and I am still expected to show up. In order for me to show up, the level of self-concealment, the level of self-policing, the level of self-soothing that has to go on 
It's disproportionate to the amount that any someone not in my social positions would have to do. It is a lot. It is a lot. And it is something that we, and I say we, Black folk, who are navigating, traversing non-traditional spaces are so intimately aware of and have been aware of for centuries. And we live those century-old coping strategies because remember I mentioned at the beginning of this that a lot of the stress related to our existence as minoritized individuals is multi-generational. It is passed down from our grandparents, you know, the birds and the bees talk is basically, how do you come home? How do I get you home? Having those talks with your children, okay? What you should do, don't wear a hoodie. Don't um, make sure you're, you're smiling. Don't be angry. Don't talk loud. Make white people comfortable. Make white people comfortable, which ends up increasing your level of discomfort and distress right? Absolutely. And all of this is a part of that re-traumatization process yes. that we take for granted. Yes. So once again, my charge to educators and to mental health professionals in university settings, listen to your Black students when they come to you saying, I cannot focus. I am feeling sad. I am tired because they are. The the scale of that exhaustion is different. It's different. It's different. It's the same words, right? It's the same words. I'm anxious. I can't concentrate. It's the same words, but the experience behind it, the depth of the experience, the depth of the distress and the discomfort. Yeah. It's historical. Yes. Right. Because not only are these students experiencing their life, their intersections, but they're carrying with them the histories attached with those social 400 years, 400 years. Yeah. Yeah. All of that is being brought in the room. So please listen. Yeah. Thank you. I was thinking the irony of you saying the irony is in order for you to keep showing up, there's so many parts of you that can't show up. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a dialectical experience being black sometimes. Yeah. And there's this whole, like, there's this whole other narrative in, I would, you know, what I think of as culture, but that's probably white culture about being ourselves and the importance of being ourselves and being whole people. And that's a, that's a value that a white counseling profession has really like help people to be genuine and authentic and real. And yet for you, like that is not safe. We, we have not made it safe for you. Yeah. And you know, I am a proud, loud black woman simultaneously. Um, and I am a loud, proud black woman simultaneously from low SES growing up in the South, grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. And I have, like I said, matriculated through PWIs, predominantly white institution. And a large part of my existence, Sarah, in those spaces was how much of myself do I give that is okay and that won't be hurt? And how much of myself do I hold back 
because I am intimately aware of the stereotypes associated with my identity. Now, we call this stereotype threat in our profession, um, which basically uh, points to when an individual from a minoritized group is aware of the social images, social messages, social expectations um, attached to their social identity, and they are aware of the likelihood of those images, expectations, and messages being manifested given their occupation of a specific context, it creates a level of anxiety. So I am intimately aware of myself as a Black woman when I am in a meeting and someone has said something that rightfully induces anger, I immediately go into self-policing because why? I am working against the angry Black woman stereotype, right? And what that is too, there's also internalization processes at play. So internalization is the degree to which an individual from a minoritized group has begun to take on those images, those messages and those expectations and have some belief in them. It's like, how could you not believe these things after you are constantly bombarded with them, right? And you are constantly confronted with them. You start operating from that place. I'm not angry. I shouldn't be angry. So at every turn, I'm going to show up as if I'm not angry when I should be enraged right now. So I go the extra mile of choosing my words carefully, making sure I'm smiling, making sure that my voice does not escalate above a certain octave. It's the self-policing. And, and the amount of resources and energy that has to go into that that is getting right. shunted away from studying or self-care right. or having right. fun or building relationships, like just the amount of energy. The amount of energy. And this goes back to this idea that, but it's, it's normalized. These are normalized processes that I, as a Black woman, have come to know and have come to build into my existence so that they become automatic. Yeah, but to ensure your survival. I mean, they're necessary. They've been necessary. They've been part of your coping. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so how do we deal with all of this, right? How do we cope with all of this? Part of the work that I have begun to do myself, Sarah, as a Black woman in this profession, is the decolonization and liberation of my mind, the decolonization and liberation of my existence. So liberation psychology, decolonization psychology, is it's we're here, right? We are here. And it's basically how scholars, particularly Black scholars, are assessing and confronting and questioning all the ways in which we do this work um, under the trope of, or it's not even a trope, but the realness of white supremacy and the pervasiveness of whiteness, right? Yes. yes. And so this idea that I can show up and be myself and be myself regardless of the consequences that is a, libera a liberated move. 
right? That is an attempt of me to decolonize myself and my existence as a professional in this profession, right? Yes, yes. Um, taking the revolutionary act to rest and to say no, right? Because I think as, as a Black woman in this profession who was once a Black student, always feeling as if I have to outperform and perform even more, do all the things so that I could be considered just half as much as my non-Black counterpart. And so a revolutionary act for me, and I've heard, and I've heard this from multiple sources of Black scholars, is to rest and say no. It is my, my God-given right. It is my inherent civil liberty to rest to say no, because when I rest and I say no, I am saying yes to me. Yeah. And it's radical given the history mm -hmm. and given everything we've been talking about. There is another scholar that I love, Dr. Sean Utsi, who developed the concept of Afri-cultural coping. And Dr. Utsi talks about all the ways in which Black folk cope that is inherent to our culture, the ways in which we use spirituality to make sense and make meaning of the suffering that we confront, the use of social support networks, friend groups, family groups, to reflect back to us ourselves in a positive light when oftentimes our self and our social existence is erased from the very social fabric in which we are embedded. And talked about our activism, how we can become involved and how that can be coping. Like me participating in this podcast right now, not only for me is it a revolutionary act and it is, uh, it's my attempt to decolonize and liberate myself by speaking my truth, it's also how I'm coping. Because feeling silence and invisible for so long, Sarah, I am here. My words are being heard. My experience is being recognized. And I feel good about having these conversations right now. It is giving me life because you cannot ignore me and my communities anymore. So being involved, that's a way of coping for some. And so... Having access to these various forms of Africultural coping is essential to how we take care of ourselves. And I think what the, the utility of current conversations about racial tensions and race relations in this country and around the world, why they are so useful is because we're introducing I, and I wouldn't even say it's being introduced because I think Black communities have been championing this for a very long time. Yes. An extra layer of that coping is I need my white folk to step up, educate each other, right? Because it's not my position to educate you on the things that you should know. But educate each other. Stand with us as we question and we dismantle policies that are oppressive. That's the, the added layer of this coping, because remember earlier I talked about the, the breathing, right? And so there's only so much that we can do to help our Black clients be okay. At some point, they're going to have to be external 
elements or external factors that aid in those internal processes of coping, such as the reversal of discriminatory policy practices that maintain the status quo of oppression for some. Right. We have to get it at the source. Absolutely. Get at the source. Don't question a person's distress response. Question why they are distressed to begin with. I mean, the source is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 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 And how do we cope? So how do we cope in terms of the therapeutic process, right? Because we are both mental health professionals. What does that look like in a therapy room when you are working with a Black client? A, do not expect them to educate you. That is not their responsibility. The expectation that I ex- I ex- educate you on a system that I did not create, but yet you benefit from in and of itself is a microaggression. Yes. And micro doesn't really, I mean, I know that's the word, but that doesn't even begin to get at it. Absolutely. 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 And also too, as a clinician, it's okay for you to align yourself with the client. I think recently in my work with clients, I have learned the real ways in which sometimes me being very calm in the face of my client's anger is disruptive and dismissive. And so I have given myself permission, rightfully so, to self-disclose and express that anger. Because what that does is it strengthens the therapeutic alliance, A, and It is an act of advocacy for the client in the room. It shows that I too do not agree with what you have been subjected to. I think a lot of times in our work as clinicians, neutrality is something that we're taught, but neutrality in this day and age- It's violence. It's violence violence. and it's complicity. It's it's, white silence is, is a huge part of why we're still here. Right. And so white silence is is a form of so-called neutrality that perpetuates things. It is. It is. So don't be neutral. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that that is healing. I have had a number of clients thank me for yelling and screaming with them because they felt heard, they felt seen, and they knew that they weren't crazy. I can only imagine. Yes. Yes. Yes, that, that is often a question of many Black clients. Is it just me, Rainisha? Do you think I'm crazy? That couldn't happen. Absolutely, you are not crazy. And I've had the same, I'm sure it means, I don't know, more different when it's coming from you as, a, as another Black person and when it's coming from me as a, as a white person. But I have had Black students thank me for validating their experiences with white supremacy. And it's, it seems like such a small thing to do as a white person. And yet their responses made me realize that they never get that from other white people. Like it's radical for a white person to, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be radical at all, but it's radical for a white person in any white person maybe, but especially in a professional setting 
to mm-hmm. validate those experiences. And that mm-hmm. is one thing we white people need to do. Yes, yes. Use your privilege to help with the liberation process of clients. And I would also say of your colleagues. I think one of the things that I have experienced right now, Sarah, is the fatigue, advocacy and activist fatigue, being a Black woman doing this work right now because my clients are coming to me, rightfully so, and I'm glad to do it. But this shouldn't be the work of the marginalized clinicians. No, no, that is a huge problem that, and it should, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be the work of the marginalized students and faculty and staff either. I mean, y'all been working for a real long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so stepping, stepping in and stepping up to educate, educate yourself and educating other people to share in the burden and helping to overthrow discrimination, racism in this country, you know, it's necessary. It's so necessary. And it's, I was, yeah, I was thinking it's tricky because the, the article that I'll post about was written by a, a black female attorney. And she, she says, white people need to stop calling yourselves allies, like, right and you're rolling your eyes so I take it you agree with that and it Mm -hmm. it it was it was like ally implies that oh we're both in this together and this is a shared problem and it's like no white people created this problem it's white people's jobs to like we made the mess we made Mm -hmm. the mess we need to figure out how to clean it up right right and you know this makes me think of another issue too, Sarah, this idea of resilience, right? I think for so long, resilience has been a function of politics of respectability. This idea that in order to, it's almost a sense of pride to be able to handle the burden of minority stress, intersectionality, discrimination-related trauma, and getting through it. I think more and more now, Black folk are coming to understand that resilience in and of itself can be very, very harmful. And in many situations, resilience wasn't a choice. It was something that was forced upon me, involuntary resilience. Right. Yes. And so once again, putting the responsibility on me to make it through without questioning why in the heck must I make it through these things or what are the things I'm making it through? Right. And so I in my work, I have cautioned myself for praising resilience in my clients, especially your minority clients who are part of minority groups. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if we're not careful, it sends another unhelpful, unhealthy message of. Well, suck it up, essentially. Sucking it up and being strong past the point of your strength. Right. Which. John Henryism. 
Yeah, and the strong black woman um, stereotype. Those things have chronic effects on our physical health, our they mental kill. health, and our mental health, yes. our, our emotional health, right? Yes. Um, so telling my clients, it's, it's okay not to be okay with the system that's not okay. Right. <laughs> you know? Love that, yes. And I want, it's okay for us to sit in that. I don't want you to have to resil or be resilient through this. Right. You shouldn't have to be. You shouldn't have to be resilient. This shouldn't even be a thing that you have to be resilient through. So, you know, that's another thing. Cautioning ourselves to praise resilience in the face of oppressive systems. Because it, it unjustly takes the gaze off of the oppressor and oppressive systems and puts the gaze back on those who are affected. Yes, the gaze and the, the responsibility. Like, oh, we just need Absolutely. to work on your resilience here. Absolutely. You, you need to learn how to tolerate these ongoing traumas and, yes. not, and not show it or not yes. feel it as much. Yes. And we would never say that to the person who's, we, it's just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it kind of goes back to this um, racial trauma, right? We would never tell a client experiencing PTSD that they need to be resilient and they need to go back to the site of the trauma and just work through it and get through it. In this situation, we have to caution ourselves when we tell our Black students, you can tough it out. You can go back to that class. You can go back to that meeting you can have those one-on-one conversations with those classmates or with those colleagues. What are we doing? Re-examining and reassessing the, the messages, the, the previous messages for coping that we have perpetuated and how they in and of themselves are not helpful and have recreated more systems of internalized oppression and external oppression as well, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Renisha, for your intellectual labor, your emotional labor, your physical labor, your spiritual labor that has gone into this conversation. And as, as we were talking before we started, you have been dealing with this stuff, preparing for this your whole life. And that will not stop. That, that, that struggle and that commitment and purpose will not stop. And that this is part of it for you. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 I can't separate my life from my work because my work is my life. One, one of the ways of working on decolonization. Mm-hmm. And liberation. Yes. Yes. Decompartmentalizing. Yeah. And that how, what a radical act that is. And that there's a lot of risk that comes with that radical act. A lot of risk, which adds to the stress, stress. the minority stress. And it's not just me. It's black folk everywhere, black students everywhere right now. In, In the process of decolonization and liberation, we are taking insurmountable risks that have a direct impact on our mental, emotional health, and in a lot of cases, our physical safety. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anything that you would want to add right now? Mm-hmm. Listen, 
listen to the the cries that are coming out of a time such as this. Continue to listen and pair that listening with action. And I'm talking to my individuals who are non-Black, and that encompasses all other uh, minoritized groups as well. Listen. And understand that your listening may look different depending on which Black person you're standing in front of because our needs are not a monolith. They are varied. They are different. So you might have to adjust. And you adjusting is okay. Yes. Yes. So listen, educate, speak, and do. Thank you. Thank you, Renisha. Absolutely. You've been listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. For new episodes, show notes, and to leave feedback or suggestions, please visit counseling.ufl.edu slash CWC Talks.